0: It is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey y'all, thanks so much for joining me for session 63 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Today we're going to be chatting about a topic that unfortunately impacts quite a few of us, childhood sexual abuse. Some studies suggest that as many as 60% of Black girls experience a sexual assault by the age of 18, so we definitely need to discuss this. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Lang. Jessica is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, currently living in Israel and practicing online. She is passionate about empowering survivors to find peace, happiness, and success in life. Jessica specializes in treating trauma using the mind-body connection and helping expats who are having a hard time adjusting to life in their new countries. Jessica and I chatted about some of the common concerns that come up for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, what treatment might look like, how to deal if your child comes to you with a report of abuse, and she shared her favorite resources. If you hear something that you'd like to share with others as you're listening, please do so on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. I'm very happy to have you here because this is a very important topic. And, you know, I have seen a lot of statistics that talk about as much as 60 percent of black girls have experienced sexual assault by the time they're age 18. So I know that it's something that likely impacts lots of listeners out there.
1: Definitely. Um, It's it's I think the you know, the national average is like one in three girls and one in five boys. So and it's underreported. For African Americans, which is all the more tragic, I think. So, yeah, it's definitely a topic that needs to discussing.
0: Yeah. So, your specialty is working with women who women specifically, or women and men?
1: So i I work with um, sexual abuse survivors of all ages, but the people who come to my office tend to be females. So, even though I work with males, like boys and girls. I primarily get coming in, you know, young girls, teens or are, are adult women. Got it.
0: Okay. So what are some of the common issues that might come up for women who come to you after they are, you know, when they're trying to heal from childhood sexual abuse?
1: Some of the, I think the biggest one really is relationship issues. So not knowing how to stand up for themselves or, um, disconnection um, during sex and not enjoying sex. Um, those are the two main ones that for adults who come in um, because usually they're suffering from flashbacks or usually with the, you know, when they get touched a certain way, it triggers it, triggers their stress response system and they go back in time. And so they're, un- they're unable to enjoy sex. Um, and then just general not being able to stand up for themselves, um, followed by low self-esteem, Um, which again kind of goes back into not standing up for themselves, but just kind of having a low self-worth, doubting themselves, questioning. Those are the biggest ones that I see. So relationship issues and and low self-esteem.
0: Got you. And so I'm wondering, Jessica, like what does treatment typically look like? Like what kinds of things might you do for somebody? Like let's say, for example, the whole issue of not being able to stand up for themselves. What kind of things might you do in therapy to help?
1: I've been doing like a lot of affirmations and helping women identify what their strengths are. So making a list and saying, okay, I'm really good at you know, this, or I'm really kind, or I'm really intelligent and saying it over and over again so that they believe um, that they are, you know, worthy. So that when it comes time to standing up for themselves and seeing, okay, if this person is saying this to me, I don't like it. I deserve better. Let's find ways to express yourself. Right. So um, and we practice that in therapy also.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if there was some role playing involved. Right. Because, you know, if you have had difficulty doing that, like even the language might be a difficult thing to kind of come up with to like say no or to stand up for yourself. So it sounds like you do involve some role playing about like, OK, if this situation happened like this, what might you say in that kind of a issue?
1: Exactly. And one of the things too, I was, I've been working a lot with clients on is, you know, understanding the context. So you don't always have to jump in and say something, right? you finding the right time to express yourself is also really important and helping them understand um, their own reactions to things so that maybe they can be more empathetic when they're sharing what's going on for them and trying to make change in their relationship.
0: So something else you mentioned was um, like difficulty maybe with intimacy with partners. And I'm wondering, like, do you typically have conversations around when it might be best or appropriate to disclose to a partner like that someone has been abused?
1: Yes, definitely. One of the, one of the hardest things for, for trauma survivors is when do I disclose, disclose, do I disclose or they have absolutely no filter and they, they share too early. Um, and I think both, both are kind of examples of, un, like inability to maintain closeness and not understanding, you know, kind of like pushing people away or self-sabotage. So when it comes to people who are, you know, young girls who are in, in relationships and they're trying to decide, okay, when do I, when do I disclose this thing? I think, if it's in a loving, safe, trusting relationship, then that's, you know, that's when you want to start slowly broaching the subject of something, something terrible happened or, you know, and we can find the language. Like we work together in finding the language to use based off of um, the relationship with the partner and and even having, you know, a part, the partner come in, you know, whatever works for the person in a relationship. But I think and having the relationship be a safe, trusting relationship is key. And helping them articulate and figure out, is this a safe, trusting relationship? Which, again, will go back to their self-esteem and being able to advocate for themselves. So things we've already kind of worked on in session so that they know, okay, this is an example of an appropriate relationship. And I, want, I can see myself going further. Let me try to make strides for, like, uh, intimacy
0: Got it. So even if they came in saying like I'm having intimacy issues with my partner you might walk them back to like the kinds of things that are leading to the intimacy you wouldn't necessarily just jump into like okay this is how you could do xyz better you would encourage them to maybe have some conversations about you know like safety in the relationship and um, you know is this partner even a good partner for you based on you know your trauma history.
1: Exactly because a lot of times trauma survivors kind of they end up repeating the pattern of abuse unwillingly. So what seems exciting and, oh, this is the perfect person. Well, when they break it down, they actually have a lot of fear. Um, And so the fear is what's driving them. And it's, that's not a a recipe for a trusting and safe relationship. If you have a lot of fear. Um, So helping them to kind of alleviate that fear and making sure the relationship is, is one that is positive and healthy then we can go into, okay, so how do we bring up this subject? How do we talk about this? How do you handle it when you, when you do disclose and you can't, re- you can't control the person's reaction? So how do you kind of manage your own feelings around sharing? Because that's also really big.
0: And you brought up an interesting point, Jessica. I'm wondering if you can say more about the whole idea that um, sometimes abuse survivors will unwillingly reenact those patterns of abuse. What does that look like? What does that mean?
1: Okay. I'm going to try not to get too uh, jargony, but (laughs) it's it's, it's my curse. But, you know, we often have these patterns from childhood and, you know, the brain likes what it knows, you know, doesn't do novelty very well. It likes to put things in a category and that's the end of it. And so unfortunately, when you, fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, when you have these traumatic experiences... Um, it kind of what we say, like it rewires the brain. So you're more sensitized to those types of, to those types of triggers. And so you end up getting in these relationships because they're familiar and you kind of, your body knows how to respond to something that's familiar. It doesn't know how to respond to something that's not familiar. So it's, it's this really strange thing that, okay, this person is a loving, caring partner for me. And that's actually making me feel threatened and scared. And so I have to push them away. It's, it's totally illogical, but that's what the body does. And so you have to really actively work against that to, to, to make the changes. So you're not reenacting, you know, previous traumas and and things like that. So that's kind of like the short condensed version of it. Mm -hmm. um, That's really, really tough for people is that unfortunately, like it's just something familiar. So your body knows how to respond to that, even though it's not, it's not healthy.
0: Yeah, and I don't know that we often hear that, Jessica, so I'm glad that you pointed that out, because I would imagine that that is incredibly freeing for people to hear sometimes, right, that, um, you know, sometimes they feel like, okay, I keep finding myself in these same kinds of relationships, and I'm not sure what I'm doing, um, but, but kind of hearing the background of, you know, like, in some ways, your brain is wired to kind of keep ending up in these relationships, and so you can recognize it and make some different decisions.
1: Exactly. And and it's totally possible to make the changes. I mean, and, and once you start to, to do it, I mean, even little baby steps, you start to feel differently. And yeah, it's scary. I mean, anytime you make any change, it's gonna, you know, be a little scary. But once you start to do it, and you see the impact, and you see how it changes, it's so freeing. And that's a lot of the healing. It's just, you can let a lot of stuff go and stop beating yourself up about it.
0: So I'm wondering, Jessica, if another thing that comes up is um, like maybe you see women once they have become parents. Um, And I think a lot of times becoming a parent unlocks a lot of stuff from your childhood that you didn't even maybe know was there. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk maybe more about that, like what kinds of things maybe related to parenting come up for somebody who has a history of childhood sexual abuse.
1: One of the most common ones I get with moms um, is they are very protective and hypervigilant with their daughters around males. And so, which, gosh, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because you, you know, you appreciate and respect these women trying to do for their children what wasn't necessarily done for them. But it also creates a hypervigilance and fear that can, you know, make this child wary of all men, and can impact their relationships in terms of when they get older and they're trying to decide. Okay, is this person right? I mean, if they they're afraid of men, then they're not they're not going to be able to kind of get into healthy relationships. They're going to be avoidant. Um, so that's one of the the ones that I see a lot. Um, and then I have the reverse. I mean, it's it's always interesting when it comes to trauma because <clears throat> you I oh I tend to see extreme behaviors so you have the overprotection and then you have the the moms who are dads even who are just completely um oblivious to what's going on um and they're not paying attention to the subtle signs or the things that you know the red flags that are going on um and so or their child might even report to them hey you know something happened and they kind of shut down and they don't believe their child so it's it's kind of it's kind of an interesting I don't know it's just kind of interesting that that's the two that i that I've seen most frequently
0: so they either are hyper vigilant or kind of like checked out yeah exactly okay, okay, so speaking of that, you know you mentioned um like if A child comes to a parent reporting that something has happened, I think that's also an important discussion to have um, because I often hear stories of how that goes horribly wrong um, and and impacts women far into their life, right? Like they try to come and tell mom or dad that something happened and they either weren't believed or um, like the parents just did not handle it well. So do you have any tips for parents about like how to respond should your child come to you and tell them that they have been sexually assaulted or abused
1: yes definitely um so this is so tough for parents because when their child comes to them and says uncle so-and-so did you know he touched me inappropriately you know if that's your brother your natural reaction is going to be disbelief you know you're going to want to question and the first thing i say when you're to the parents and when your child says something to you is to take a beat. Don't respond immediately with, you know, the intense feelings and say, thank you for, thank you for sharing this with me. Let's, let's talk about it, you know, and find a safe place, a quiet place and say, I would like to hear more about this and let your child tell you. And when they, if they become fluttered or they want to stop, say, it's okay. If you don't want to talk about it anymore, when you're ready to tell me more, I'm listening And in the background, in the behind the scenes, then you're you're notifying the, the police and the appropriate authorities. But in terms of connecting with your child, you want to be there for them. You want to show them that you believe them. You want to provide them with love and nurturance and making the environment safe for them to feel comfortable to talk to you about what's going on, because it's very hard. It's very scary for a child. Oftentimes, perpetrators lie and threaten these children so for them to be brave enough to say anything goes against their natural instinct and and so you being able to be level-headed and even if you lose it even like oh my god what you know going back and saying oh you know sorry this is really upsetting that's mom's reaction or that's dad's reaction i really want to be there for you i really want to help you you know tell tell me more you know and if they, like i said if they say no I you know i'm done sharing that's all i have than saying, okay, you know, when you're ready, you can share more. And um, because what you don't want to do is start asking them a bunch of questions, you know, kind of like an interrogation. Because what happens when you do that is that you you kind of make, we have like different arousals and you move them from being like calm to alert or scared. And once they're in that, that place in their brain, they actually can't remember any details. And so they'll sit there and they'll say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And they really don't know because they don't have access to that because now you've scared them and they're feeling stressed. So being really calm and making sure you're just allowing them to come to you and their time and share and, you know, providing them with love and nurturance. And like I said, doing the behind the work scenes of contacting appropriate referral, um, you know, authorities is, is key.
0: I think that's a really important point to highlight too, Jessica, because I think sometimes like, especially like if you've seen this played out on TV or something, right. um, Mm -hmm. Where a child is being asked all these questions and they say, I don't know. Sometimes that leads the parents to to think, Oh, well, you're not telling the truth about this. Like you can't tell me the details, but what actually has happened is that you stressed the child out and they can't remember. Like you said,
1: they really can't remember. And you know, when, when a child is being abused, their body naturally shuts down. It shuts down parts. Like most kids become dissociative. So they really don't have access to the details of the trauma. It's too stressful. I mean, it's it's locked and it's stored in their body. It's not in their mind like we think of as adults. And so that's the hardest part about abuse is that if a kid does say something, you know, I mean, kids just... they just don't lie about things like that, but trying to badger the details out of them just doesn't, doesn't work. Cause they really, they really don't remember.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So I want to kind of double back a little bit because I don't know that we like, actively flushed out the whole um you know like what you mentioned in terms of women coming to you because they are having trouble like getting close to their partners physically and talk a little bit more about like what the work around that looks like because i would imagine that could maybe be time consuming right like to kind of unlock all these layers of trauma and to understand you know like how it is to experience intimacy in a way that's healthy and like consensual
1: exactly yeah and it is it is really hard because a lot of times they're carrying the shame of what happened to them and they feel I mean I think one of the things that makes me the most sad is when you know girls are sexually abused as children and they think that they're they're no longer virgins right like the the abuse like took that that part of them and so they end up acting out sexually or they shut down sexually but they for them, the first time experience wasn't wasn't their choice um, so that I just kind of wanted to briefly address that just because I just feel like it it plays with the mindset for a lot of these these girls who then go into adulthood and they feel like they're damaged because they quote unquote allowed this to happen even though they didn't allow anything it was against their will that's where a lot of the shame comes from and so when they're in these relationships and they're trying to decide okay what is, you know, what feels good? Well, what feels wrong? And how do I say no? And how do I say yes? It's, it's really like going back to the beginning stages um, and helping them just doing simple things of practicing saying no and feeling the power of being able to say no, or like getting back in touch with their body. Um, and by doing yoga or doing dance or whatever it is, where they can start to feel more loose and more comfortable again in their body. So that when it comes time to be intimate or share these intimate experiences, they have a a different view of what's pleasurable, right? It's not pleasure and pain mixed together. And now they're dissociating. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm also thinking, Jessica, about like this kind of, um, I'm not sure if circular argument is the right word, but you also hear all of these, um, you know, like, stories and things and like just even cultural beliefs around like little black girls being fast or hot or yes. you know that kind of thing but then when you think about like the incidence of childhood sexual abuse like some of that and if they then feel like okay like this is not you know um like this was kind of taken away from me and if that results in them maybe having maybe more sexual activity than they would have had this not happened, then it almost kind of perpetuates this kind of cycle that it feels like it's difficult to break into.
1: Exactly. You know, one of the things that, I mean, you're so spot on. And one of the things that's really, you know, really important to know is, you know, kids usually don't come and say, mom, dad, you know, so-and-so touched me. But what you start to see is a change in the child's behavior. And one of the things that you'll start to see, especially if it's prolonged sexual abuse that started when the child was young um, because children naturally seek affection and attention from adults like it's their way of it's it's part of attachment and growing close what you see is the extreme of that of what's called like seductive behaviors and so they might be more flirty or the touch might be more sensual and this is not a cognitive thought process it's not them saying oh this is what i'm doing i know what i'm it's it's that brain stuff we talked about right and so adults or older men prey on Prey on that in children, and so that's the type of behavior that's reinforced, and then they start to think that that's all I am, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's what I see also. That's just really a shame, and you know, sadly, I, mean, I don't know if it's sad or not sad, but um, you know, I, I work with you know black girls who are twelve and thirteen and fourteen, who they their faces look twelve and thirteen and fourteen, but their bodies look maybe a little more adult. Mm-hmm. and here come, you know, teen the, the, the thing, the people I'm really thinking about is like, do you remember back when R. Kelly was dating Aaliyah, like way mm. back? I mean, we're, we're, we're probably date we're probably A.D. AD, <laughs> AD um, but that's like the one I remember the most is like when you're 15 or you're 14, it seems so romantic to have this man be into you, but as it, it's an adult and he has all this power and this control and he's taking advantage of that natural kind of need for children. And then, you know, all of us as humans to be loved. Um, So I don't know if I kind of went off on a tangent. I feel like a little bit did, but (laughs) that's what came to my mind when you mentioned that is, is that part of the abuse is like these seductive behaviors that kids exhibit. And then it it becomes this perpetual cycle of of abuse and they continue to be re-victimized.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, I'm glad you did bring up the R. Kelly thing, because I think it's very um, critical co- to this conversation, because I think in looking at the response to him and like people having trouble not going to his concerts and like wanting to not listen to his music and really like highlighting the fact that he is incredibly problematic and dangerous and has been for years to black girls in our community. But how many other predators there are like him that we often protect and you know don't keep our girls safe from
1: exactly and it's it's that's the sad part you know it's it's the aging of of our black girls you know putting them just making them grow up so fast so that they're missing out on their childhood Mm -hmm. um so it's like they skipped you know the they're just skipping stages and that's the tragedy you know that's the tragedy
0: Yeah, yeah. And do you have any ideas about, you know, like, how we might be able to have better conversations around that? Like, what kinds of things can, like, the community do a better job of to make sure that we're protecting our girls better?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. You know, And probably, like,
0: (laughs) You know, like, it's, that could be its own episode, right? Like, just the whole town hall meeting on that. But I'm just yes. curious if you had any ideas, like, just from a clinical perspective of things you think people could be doing a better job of.
1: You know, I think it's, it's going to be really helping. It's educating boys and girls. It's the trying not to sexualize teen girls. Um it's kind of unfortunate that in this society across the board, you start to see, you start seeing kids with clothes that are made for adults. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole revolution right now of sexualizing children that I think is, is generally problematic. And it's been going on within our community for long periods of time, based off of our own you know legacy of, of slavery and racism in the country that I won't go into. Um, and so I think if the onus is on is on the adults to really help girls feel empowered um, to not, to not highlight their sexuality, but highlight, you know, their, their other gifts, their academics, their athletics, their just anything that's not sexual and then encouraging men, you know, boys to do the same, because I think a lot of the times with the the boys who are maybe, you know, 16 or 18, you know, they are also suffering from, from low self-esteem and trying to find their worth and they get it by, by over-sexualizing girls. So helping them to feel their own self-worth outside of, outside of, you know, masculinity if that makes sense or Mm -hmm. sexualization
0: yeah yeah and I think in a lot of cases boys are incredibly over sexualized right like just the whole Mm -hmm. idea of like sowing your wild oats or like okay this is how you become a man Um, so even if it's not really related to the sexualization of girls I think that even boys are pushed to kind of like explore this this in a way that isn't always the healthiest yeah definitely Yeah. So what are some of your favorite resources, Jessica? Do you have um, books or podcasts or articles or websites or things that if people wanted to like read more about this or things that you have found really helpful for some of your clients? Are there things you suggest pretty frequently?
1: So I, in terms of working with children who've been sexually abused, one of the books that I really like, I don't have the author, unfortunately, but it's called A Bad Thing Happened. And it never, it, it talks about, it just, it's a book of going through, okay, a bad thing happened, you know, and I felt like this. And it goes to like typical feelings that a survivor of sexual abuse would feel, but it never actually names I was sexually abused. So I like it because it goes, it, it really taps into the, the feeling. So it normalizes things and it provides an opportunity for, you know, the, the child to kind of talk more freely about, oh, I had something bad happen to me um so that's one that I use with kids um in terms of like uh, educational purposes um this is more I mean it's a little bit more clinical but I think it could also be useful for um adults there's two books one is um Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der, van der Kolk mm-hmm. um so I, th- I feel like that's a little bit more clinical but I also I like it because it, it it describes the it, the how the the body um, keeps and stores trauma and it normalizes again kind of these experiences that you have that happen that you feel okay why why am i blowing things constantly out of proportion oh it's my stress response system so like it, it kind of makes you feel normal um, and a book that it's kind of i don't know i i like it some of my clients like it but the authors I guess we're part of, I don't know, there's some drama around it that I recently found out, but I like the book and the clients like the book, but it can be really triggering and that's A Courage to Heal. So I don't know if you know that one.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I have heard that some clients like really feel triggered by it, but then other clients really, really like it.
1: Exactly. So it's kind of like, uh, that's one of those that I would, as a therapist, I would slowly introduce like maybe a chapter or something. I wouldn't encourage a survivor to go out and read it on their own. It's just the stories and yeah, it can just be really upsetting.
0: Okay. So that may be one that we would not encourage. Like if you are not in treatment, like it may be, if you're working with a therapist, maybe one to talk with your therapist about whether you guys can work through some of the exercises probably would not be one that you want to just go pick up on your own. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Got it. Exactly. And then finally, a final one, which also could be triggering, but I think it's also completely, Gosh, it's so validating to hear about is um, <clears throat> Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGrew. Mm-hmm. And I just I absolutely love her. You can watch her lectures on YouTube also. But I think breaking down kind of the legacy of slavery in the U.S. and a lot of just overall kind of trauma symptoms, um, it, I think it's like a nice, I don't know. I, I just really like it. And the way she explains things, it really makes you feel like, okay, these are survival instincts. I just now I'm not in that mode anymore. So I can, I can do different things to to change and be better. But wow, at least I know I'm not crazy. So that's, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I really love her and and recommend her, especially for, um, for our black, our black uh, clients. But also I think anybody who's working with, with African-American population should read that book.
0: Got it. Okay. So tell us more about your practice, Jessica, because you have a bit of an interesting practice and I'm sure people would love to hear about it.
1: It is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I um, do all of my work online. I'm licensed in California. And so all of my clients live in California, but I live in Israel because I felt the need to go on an adventure. So I decided a third world country would be Awesome and don't get mad at me, people out there who've been Israel and want to tell me it's a first world country because I live here and it's not. Um (laughs) but (laughs) you know, it's it's part of the adventure and learning and different cultures and, and things like that. So um I do all my work online, I work with kids as young as seven, I do lots of movement, yoga, dance, music, we play games. This is with my kids obviously, but adults too get into the yoga and it's it's really about tapping into the body and and making those connections. Um so that's I think that's it for my that's my practice.
0: Okay. And where can people find um find you online, get more information about you, any groups or anything that you're running, where can people find you?
1: You can find me on jessicalanktherapy.com That's my website. I'm pretty active on it, blog regularly, so probably see stuff all over the interwebs. Um I do some Instagram, can be kind of fun with the pictures. Um, so that's Jessica underscore Lang underscore LMFT. And then I do YouTube um, once a month. So that's, and of course Facebook, but you know, every, as my sister told me, Facebook's for old people.
0: So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What's the name of your YouTube channel, Jessica?
1: Um, it's J Lang Therapy and Consulting, okay. which is also the name of mine. Um,
0: my practice. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us today, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm so grateful that Jessica was able to share her expertise with us about such an important topic. Be sure to check out the show notes to get more information about Jessica's practice and the resources she shared. You can find them at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 63. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, make sure to visit the directory at therapyforblackgirls.com directory. And if you wanna continue this conversation and join a community of other sisters who listen to the podcast, join us over in the Thrive Tribe at therapyforblackgirls.com tribe. Make sure you answer the three questions that are asked to gain entry. Thanks again for joining me this week. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take care.